Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 51, The Mighty Ducks. Don't be fooled. This isn't about the Mighty Ducks movies from Disney. This is actually a conversation about a great conservation group, Ducks Unlimited. And this conversation is with Jim Figgy and Jeremy Mercer of Ducks Unlimited. Uh, To give you a quick background about both of them, Jim is the regional biologist for Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Long Island, and the uh, coastal part of Connecticut. Uh, He also holds a bachelor's degree in wildlife and fishery science from PSU, so a little bit local guy. Uh, He got his master's in wildlife and fishery sciences from Mississippi State University. Jeremy is basically, to make it real simple, uh, he's from Maryland, and he is DU fundraiser and volunteering guru. He's been with Ducks Unlimited since 2002. So we're going to discuss a couple different things, but the main points are, how did Ducks Unlimited get started? Uh, The conservation work that Ducks Unlimited has been able to implement, and also, you know, how you can help support all wetland-dependent species, and especially ducks. We really get into some nitty-gritty on how they use your fundraising dollars, if you are are a member, the members' fundraisers uh, raising dollars, uh, to really do some quality conservation work. Let's just dive right in and get started. And on the line now, we have Jim Figgy. Did I say that right, Jim? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, so I've already given in the intro a rundown of your history, uh, you know, what that you're the regional biologist and um, sort of, you know, where your credentials come from. Uh, and I really wanted to have someone from Ducks Unlimited on to highlight the work that this conservation organization does because uh, for some people that aren't into waterfowl hunting, they may not recognize what Ducks Unlimited is able to do. So if you could just give us a, just a very brief sort of how history of how Ducks Unlimited started. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, starting things off, I, I completely understand about the misconceptions about DU. I mean, there's folks out there that some think that we're a t-shirt company uh, all the way down to those that know exactly what we do. So it's, it's something we deal with all the time and we're glad to uh, educate folks on all things DU. Um, a little bit of history. Ducks uh, Unlimited as an organization got started in the 1930s based on some issues that were arising based on the time of the Decibel era uh, where wetlands were being designated along much of the breeding grounds and wintering grounds of of waterfowl and uh, a lot of concerned scientists and hunters started noticing a, a market decline in waterfowl populations. So they decided to get together and try to do some fundraising and get some projects on the ground, mainly in the habitat uh, regions of Canada, is where we got our start. Uh, basically, the you know, the duck factory of the world, the prairie pothole region, um, and 
sort of bloomed from there. So it was a, a bunch of folks, including Joseph Knapp is one of those that's usually uh, marketed as the, some of the founding fathers of Ducks Unlimited, and we officially got our start in 1937. Um, but from day one, our mission has been to restore, conserve, and manage wetland habitats, uh, as well as other sushi habitats for North American waterfowl. Um, and that includes all of North America, from Canada to Mexico. Um, and these habitats that we're working on also have uh, a ton of other benefits for other wildlife and people as well. Um, nearly half of the bird species and two-thirds of the fish species rely on wetlands throughout some point of their life cycle, including um, approximately about 90% is estimated of threatened endangered species depend on wetlands just arrived. Uh, and then from a, a, a more home personal feel, that, you know, wetlands and you know, outdoor recreation in general is you know, it's about 102 million people in the U.S. recreate on some sort of wetland type, uh, which adds to about $150 billion in the economy annually. So definitely puts a lot into the local businesses and things like that nature. But um, so from a non-financial sort, more from a biological side, these wetlands sort of act like uh, nature's kidneys, filtering pollutants, nutrients before they enter our waterways, basically giving us clean water to drink and use for various uh, agricultural and other activities. Um, wetlands also refill groundwater supplies, so droughts are certainly an issue that we're all dealing with from time to time, and wetlands definitely help by adding water back into these deep water aquifers. Uh, and then the uh, vice versa, they also help with flooding. Uh, definitely on our coastal systems, a lot where I work, uh, we're dealing a lot with increasing tides, increasing uh, sea level rises, and these wetlands are known to absorb and store that water and storm energy um, and prevent flooding and reducing erosion and other sorts of impacts. And certainly, um, there's a wide variety of other things, but those at least are some of the main benefits. Um, so just a little bit more about Ducks Unlimited. You know, at our heart, we are a habitat conservation organization through and through. Uh, nothing more, nothing less. Um, we are a habitat-driven organization through the promote protection, restoration, and management of these natural habitats. Um, you know, we're founded and supported by hunters. Um, and that's been our primary base for quite some time, but actually as of people become more knowledgeable about DU and all these aforementioned benefits that I said about wetlands, we actually got a lot of non-hunters that are starting to join our volunteer ranks and supporting from foundations, to donors, to major support. So, um, but it's, it's this strength, uh, our strength really is, uh, this singleness of purpose, wetland habitat conservation for waterfowl is um, sort of uh, at our heart and, and how we've been so successful at being um, basically the, the world's leader in wetland conservation since we don't stray too much from that idea. Well, I'm really glad that you uh, brought up the point of all the good things that wetlands do for, uh, you know, ecology and for the habitat and um, even, you know, for ourselves as, as the human species, um, because, you know, as a non-waterfowl hunter myself, someone that didn't grow up in, in it, I, I knew of Ducks Unlimited, 
uh, as we talked about a little bit before we started recording. Um, but I, you know, I, I looked at it mainly as we're, you know, you're just doing things that are benefiting ducks. But when you really break it down, just as you break down improving habitat for any wildlife species, um, you know, improving wetlands is doing more than just benefiting ducks and, and other waterfowl. It's actually benefiting us as well. Absolutely. Um, we more or less, uh, although, you know, ducks is, is core to our, our hearts and you know, importance to us, we almost look at it as an umbrella species in which there's tons of other uh, benefits of other species and even people themselves can get from the work that we're doing. Um, and at, it's because of that ability for us to more or less be that catalyst group since we're dealing with a species that has benefits to a wide variety of other benefits, both biological and human based. Uh, we have a lot of success with various different partners from other uh, like state and federal wildlife management agencies to nonprofits uh, like the Nature Conservancy and some more local groups, uh, land conservancies, um, all the way even to a policy. Uh, we are a bipartisan group. We don't tend to go one way or the other. We basically ride the middle since we all need clean water. We all need uh, um, places to recreate and get outdoors. So um, we are very much the middle lines and, and the catalyst for a lot of conservation work, both direct to what we deliver on the ground as well as our influence in other organizations that are doing uh, similar work or um, work that can also be attributed to benefits to wetlands since not only do we work in the wetland corridor, but also in that fringe area, those buffering wetland or those buffering upland habitats that are adjacent um, to these wetlands. So you know, benefits to the pheasants, to the forested stands for turkeys and other things. So we get a lot of support from a lot of other groups um, that ultimately lead to the benefit of wetland health and resiliency. Um, but uh, yeah. All right, I'm going to bring Jeremy in here. He just popped up. Hello? Hey, Jeremy, how you doing? Good. Sorry for being late. I mean, it went a little longer and I, we were all hoping. No worries, no worries. We, uh, we just got Jim started on talking a little bit about uh, the history and, and the mission of uh, Ducks Unlimited. Um, so we'll just sort of keep continuing on. Uh, okay. You're okay with that? Sure. Uh, so with the improvement of wetlands, I mean, what, what does that look like? What does a healthy wetland look like? Sure. So it's kind of a somewhat a loaded question because we deal with all across the nation, all across the continent. And there's various different wetland types from forested wetlands to what we call emergent wetlands, which are shallow with uh, vegetation, herbaceous vegetation emerging through the water surface, all the way to tidal coastal wetlands. So it very much varies, but in general, you know, as far as waterfowl habitat, uh, we mainly have several different priorities, uh, and that's based on where it is in the world. Um, a lot of our stuff that we work on in, in Canada and, and in northern tiers of United States, the Prairie region, the um, New England region, we're dealing with a lot of breeding habitats. We're looking for um, 
vegetative cover as well as space um, since these birds tend to be territorial and they need space to be able to you know raise that clutch of eggs successfully and and get them into the first flight of their lives um, in the mid-continent we're usually talking or across the board mid-continent we're talking about you know, some both uh, migration and to an extent some migration habitat as well so in that case in general we're looking for foraging capacity since these birds need energy to thrive and basically make that annual cycle back to the breeding grounds and be successful to start it over again and then all the way down to our, our core um, breeding areas which tend to be lower in the gulf coast and uh, down towards uh, the southern california and mexico and and to an extent, although we don't have as much of an influence in, into South America, but um, these areas we're typically looking to be able to hold birds for the long term over that um, wintering period. So again, um, they tend to have the conditions that they need to thrive throughout the, the rest of their life cycle and have successful clutch of eggs. Although there's kind of been more recent uh, data that's coming to light that's showing that some of these migration patterns are changing. So our wintering areas are actually becoming less and less so and our migrational areas are starting to accept more of that migration and so forth so we're, we're, we're dealing with things that they change and being a science-based organization we tend to to be on the cutting edge of a lot of that ideas and knowledge and where the best use of those dollars are to put on the ground and have the best benefit for waterfowl habitat. Speaking of migration, I feel like anyone who remembers anything from elementary school science knows that ducks are a migrating species. Uh, you know, you're mentioning everything from Canada all the way down the southern United States, Mexico, into South America. I mean, what? And I understand there's different species of ducks that um, maybe have a little bit difference in their migrating patterns. But I mean, what are we? thinking of in terms of miles uh, for or maybe the average miles for a migrating duck I mean how far are they going and how long is it taking them to get from one spot to another yeah um, that's actually a, a very good question uh, and that's very much species specific since we have certain species like wood ducks and, and others um, that tend to have usually short uh, migration uh, distances, you know, usually in some states, especially in our southern states, they're year-round residents, whereas in the northern tier, they might, like specifically in Pennsylvania, um, you might have them, they might migrate just as south as, as uh, Virginia or the Carolinas. And on the other end of that spectrum, we've had, um, I believe blue-winged teal is one particular species that we've seen that breeds in up towards the northern part of Canada, southern part of you know, the Arctic Circle, at, or, uh, up in the Arctic Circle, and we've seen them go as far south as Argentina. So it, it's definitely um, a, a species specific and, and somewhat even to a regional specific since uh, we do have some regional species that tend to stick to one area and are basically endemic to that area. So. In our southern climates, we have model ducks, we have Mexican mallards, different things like that that don't tend to, to go much of anywhere. But uh, teal are definitely on the other end of that spectrum in some cases. Yeah, I guess that's my next question is, you know, in Pennsylvania, 
I mean, you can see ducks flying by uh, where I am in southwestern Pennsylvania. You know, you see them on what I would assume is sort of their, their migration. Um, but then you're also seeing ducks that it just seems like they never leave. Like they're especially, you know, the, the most um, easily recognizable duck, at least in my mind, you know, with that green head, the mallard, uh, it seems like they just, they find the lake or a pond. They're just, they're there. That That's where they're at. Is, is there any science behind why a duck or a group of ducks decides, you know what, this is a good spot. I'm, I'm not leaving here. Yeah, so um, you know, again, it's it's very site specific or species specific as far as you know habitat uses, uh, site fidelity, as we call it. Um, how often they'll, they'll go to the same area or stick to the same area. Um, and there's even within a particular species, there might be you know, somewhat what we call subpopulations. Like Pennsylvania, there is a resident population of mallards that breed here and, and to an, a certain extent stay in this area. However, we also have um, a non-resident population that comes up from in northern uh, New York all the way up into the maritime provinces of Canada that comes through and, and migrates through this area. And it really becomes uh, a, it almost becomes an idea of where their lineage is and, and how they've adapted to the current conditions that they're dealing with. Um, a lot of resident populations, they were brooded here. Um, they, they come back to the same area because the resources are here. That's what they've always known. Uh, in other cases, uh, certain species uh, adapt depending on timing and availability of food and, and different habitats that they need throughout their life cycle. Um, so it tends to be uh, a, a very specific um, question depending on the species or subpopulation of that species that you're discussing. Um, but um, yeah, mallard is one of those. We have our local populations and we have our regional populations and we have estimates of, of numbers of those species on both scales uh, and even on other scales as well outside of Pennsylvania, flyway wide, um, continent-wide, you know, different, different uh, estimators of those populations. Now, with Ducks Unlimited being started in the 1930s, uh, I'm sure that the main concern uh, was, uh, as you sort of already alluded to, is just that sort of big drop in overall duck numbers. That's uh, any, um, any really wildlife species, there, there seemed to be a big dip around the early 1900s um, where a lot of concern uh, came up. Uh, are we still, I mean, first, I guess, what, how many ducks are there now um, continent-wide? Uh, you know, what's the estimated number? And then, you know, are the concerns of the 1930s still the same concerns now, um, or have they changed? Yeah, so um, certainly things have changed slightly depending on the demographics of where you are and, and you know, it, and the, geo, well, the demographics of the species that you're thinking of and the, the geography in which they're placed in. Um, but you know, a lot of work has been occurring in, since like the 1985, but prior to that, I mean, the United States alone lost over 50% of its original wetlands, uh, not only just to the issues of the Dust Bowl area, but you know, development of, of wetlands, filling them in, draining them, um, tiling, you know, different aspects that have basically led to their destruction or, or degradation to the point where they're no longer 
usable by waterfowl or even other species. So, um, and we still kind of estimate in the early 2000s, uh, it's been a while since there's been one of these estimates that I'm aware of, but we were still losing about 100,000 acres per year. Um, and even Canada has, has lost historically over 70%. So wetland loss is still a, a real factor uh, in what we do. Because um, although by and large, a lot of waterfowl populations are on the incline or, or have leveled out as of recently, uh, we're, and there are a few that have decreased a little bit, but we're still seeing market losses in wetland habitats from development and other activities. And although we're doing so much on a daily basis, a yearly basis to, to combat that, um, there's almost as much going in there. So that's where we get into some of our policy efforts and things that can lead to long-term, large-scale uh, protection work of these wetland resources over the longer term. And, uh, you know, it, it's that, that concern about wetland loss is still very real. And two, uh, you know, some might argue, why is, why are we worried about wetland habitat when there's birds that are the best that they've been since you know, the early days of, of doing a lot of uh, waterfowl monitoring? And the simple answer is things can change on a dime. Uh, a policy can change, uh, weather patterns can change. We might have a drought year, and if there's not that at least um, consistent level of wetland resources available, if not inclining, uh, we could actually see dramatic uh, market loss in waterfowl numbers um, throughout the continent. So I, I want to switch gears real quick here uh, and hopefully uh, Jeremy can answer this question. Uh, you know, obviously when you're talking about doing work in wetlands and, and making habitat improvements, it's going to take more effort than just one or two people can. So DU has a, a very strong volunteer presence um, Jeremy, what, what kind of work are these volunteers helping with? Um, number one is fundraising money. And that's, that's whether it's through events like dinners, shoot events, golf events, uh, fishing events, you name it. Um, that is the number one source of income where I work with the volunteers to bring in. And then there's another aspect of that is major donors too. But uh, my, my, main, my main goal is starting new chapters, following the volunteers to want to help put time in to help raise money so Jim can go and spend that money. Yeah, and maybe just to build on that a little bit, I mean, certainly as a grassroots organization, um, the work that we do absolutely starts with our volunteers and conservation partners and, and various supporters because you know, a lot of the event money that comes in the door, you know, that money is, it's not directly put in the ground on its own. We actually leverage that money. So organization-wide, we typically say um, of every dollar that comes in the door, about we, it's anywhere between 80 to 85% annually gets put directly on the ground. Of that 80%, typically we're, uh, on average, we are leveraging at that, those dollars four to one. So every dollar that comes in through our event system, we're turning it into $4. Although I can get into specific cases on projects that I deal with on a regular basis where we're easily getting into 20, 30, 40 to one, depending on the project scope and the partnerships that we've developed and things. But 
it all starts uh, with those volunteers um, getting those initial dollars in the door so that we can do the magic that we do and, and uh, leverage those dollars to the most extent that we can. With that leveraging of dollars, does that come through matching grants? Does that come through um, not having to pay, uh, you know, someone to that's volunteering their time to help with the Habitat Project? How is it that you're able to to leverage that one dollar into four, or you know, even more? Yeah, so um, it really comes down to various different funding sources, grants. We do a lot of foundation proposals, uh, all that kind of event dollars and, and foundation funding and, and major donor gifts that all is what we consider our private dollars and the public funds is just that it's available to the public so it's for state grants or federal grants uh some combinations thereof but it's it's those opportunities like that that, that allow us to leverage towards those grants those public grants um but also it's our partners that are also bringing their their table their own staff time and expenses and uh, expertises and leverage match to the table that all collectively comes into that to that estimate so we have projects um, where uh, you know, we might have half a dozen or even up to a dozen different partners that are all coming together for one grant uh, and that's all money that's shared across all those organizations that get leveraged towards that that grant money uh, and ultimately lead to a more efficient more cost-productive, uh, cost-efficient project. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly starts with volunteers. So could you give some, give us an example of a project that was, that was done or is actively being done? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure as whether my listeners understand this or not, but most Habitat projects, it's not just a do the work and then you're done. It's good forever. Um, but is there a certain project that you can highlight to where, um, the money was put to really, really good use that really had a major impact to wetland habitat. Yeah, sure. Um, one particular area that is of importance, specifically in, in Pennsylvania here, and, and being in the western tier, um, as many of your listeners may be, uh, pine tuning wildlife management area is, is a very important area for not only waterfowl, but waterfowl hunters. Um, that area is well known by a lot of folks in, in the waterfowl community as being a waterfowl hotspot. And to date, we've leveraged, uh, I think we're now on our fourth um, grant that collectively we've raised probably close to about six to $700,000 of funding, uh, which to DU's cost was probably closer to 75 to 100,000 uh, with all the leveraging. And with that funding, we've been doing various different things, adding to the existing marsh system that's there, as well as um, those existing marshes were uh, increasing the habitat benefits uh, through, um, through enhancement type activities, adding water control structures, adding management techniques that weren't there before. Um, and ultimately, all those projects led to our latest sort of effort out there, which is more on the education front. We're actually kind of doing what we're calling a capstone project since Pennsylvania Cane Commission is getting ready to break ground on a brand new um, wildlife education center on Fords Island, uh, right in the middle of Pima Tuning Reservoir. And um, that education center is set up basically for the most part, all things waterfowl, but also to, to promote all things that 
Game Commission does, but being fine tuning what it is, a, a waterfowl focus area, uh, the primary focus will be in waterfowl. And uh, on Ford's Island, we have design plans and permits ready to go to break ground this summer on what we're calling the education wetland, uh, which this new um, education center will be overlooking and folks can visit the center as well as uh, the Game Commission has plans to hire some educators that will actually be taking school groups, you know, the general public down to these wetland or this wetland complex, the education wetland and teaching them about wetland management, the importance of wetlands, both to wildlife as well as you know, us as, as people. Um, and as part of that, there also be some signage and other things that people can observe from the main building that'll showcase, they can look out over the reservoir and see the different projects and, and what was involved in those on a map that'll be erected inside of the building. So it's kind of one of those holistic from, from habitat all the way to to education and even um, giving praise backwards due to our supporters and, and, and volunteers since there'll be you know, a pack that'll likely uh, be showcasing a lot of the names and folks and organizations that went into all the work that's been, been going on there since probably at least the last decade. As a teacher, hearing education centers and hearing educational efforts absolutely warms my heart uh, to be able to get positive messages and information out to the general public or other hunters or especially kids so that they can understand that importance. I, I absolutely love hearing uh, projects like that. Uh, Jeremy, you're from Maryland. Right. And Maryland, as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like a duck hotspot, right, for, for duck hunting. I mean, it seems to me that people from Maryland are all about uh, crabs and ducks and football. Um, what, helping out and, and, and working in Pennsylvania now, um, how would you rate Pennsylvania as uh, a duck hunter's paradise? Would it... Would it be on par with Maryland or, or are we getting there or what's your thoughts on that? I, I think, I mean, you, you, you have some certainly big states around that have some, some big duck hunting spots and it's not only Maryland, you have Delaware and Jersey too. Um, but Pennsylvania, I mean, we, we may not have as many ducks as those other states. Um, we, we certainly have some good wood duck shooting. And we have, we certainly have some goose, some good goose shooting, and and the goose hunting has rivaled some of the some of the other states across the country. Um, you know, unfortunately, I mean, all these all these birds. I mean, we have you know in other states surrounding us, we have bigger wildlife management areas. You have more water to work with. You know, maybe make bigger marshes. Um, but all these ducks have to fly over us, you know, and, and, and they probably do stop, you know, along the way, maybe they don't spend as much time as they, they do when they stop in Pennsylvania as they do maybe Delaware, Maryland, and Jersey. But, um, we, we, we certainly have some, some hot spots across the state. If you look at the Northwest, uh, corner of the state, there's some great, uh, some great duck hunting up there. You know, in the southeast corner, there's some good duck hunting, and there's some some certain good spots up there in north central PA and northeast PA. Um, 
but you know you're competing with some other stuff you know maryland and, and delaware does a lot of you know um, palmets which attract birds um it's great for the the way down it's not so much great for the birds when they migrate back up north but uh there's some there is some some good spots in va you certainly have to uh look for them a little harder i believe than some of the other states around us but uh, there 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 could be some good good duck hunting and goose hunting uh certainly goose hunting across the state uh you know in the central part of the state it, it's it's not really a uh as good as some of the other corners of the state but uh, like i said there's some certainly great wood duck hunting across the state here in pa yeah that makes sense that um areas that are um seem to have more water uh would have more ducks and, and more geese uh flying over them and sort of stopping off so that absolutely makes a whole lot of sense so i have to i have to ask as someone who doesn't have a tremendous amount of disposable income right i mean i i give uh my money to organizations that i feel are um worthy of that but you know all the donations that i make are, are pretty minimal uh if I want to volunteer with Ducks Unlimited and I really only have the money to maybe become a member or, uh, you know, just a couple dollars, what can I do to really have a big impact as a volunteer if in a way other than just donating money? Certainly. Yeah. And, and you, you don't have to be a, uh, a volunteer with DU to, to spend money or anything like that. I, the volunteers you know that make pennsylvania du as good as we've been doing here in the last couple of years is that they're volunteering their time and it's whether helping us set up the event or set you know sell tickets or getting you know their friends and family to attend the event um that that is the the most important thing a volunteer can help out and you know along the way we have volunteers that be, they join chapters across the state because they want to find, you know, they want to find more buddies or friends that are in the, you know, that do a lot of waterfowl hunting. Or you know, there's numerous reasons why volunteers sign up, you know, whether they want to leave, leave a legacy for their kids, they, they move to the area, you know, from another state or from somewhere else across PA, and they want to be connected with other waterfowlers in their area some sign up just because they've never got into waterfowling and they want to meet folks the like-minded that you know like to spend time out in the marsh or in the field um so there's there's all different reasons why a volunteer would sign up and and you know the biggest thing that i, I do hear from time to time is that well i don't want to volunteer because i don't you know i don't have disposable income to go buy this and that we're not looking for you to spend money we're looking for you to help out in any way you can and we realize everyone has a real job and they have other hobbies and they have family. But if you can get some of your time by attending a meeting or attending an event, you know, whether just to come and help out or to come and sit as a attendee, that is what really helps the unit, what bribes you to become, you know, where we can raise money and, and raise awareness. Um, 
you know, across the country. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jim. I uh, just kind of build on that a little bit from my perspective, since you know Jeremy and I are are, are kind of colleagues, but we tend to have separate uh, you know jobs within the organization. Um, being from fundraising, I mean, we're all fundraisers from that standpoint, but at least me personally as the biologist in Pennsylvania and the regions that I cover, um, you know, I'm trying to engage volunteers in the science behind things and, and really understand what it is we're doing. So when we're able to, we're actually getting many of our chapters and members involved in when we're going out and helping the local state agencies ban waterfowl, ban ducks, ban geese, uh, or, or going out and doing habitat planting. Um, you know, as much as I'd like to get a kid on an excavator to do our work uh, when we do some of the heavy machinery, I don't think the parents would like it too much. So we, <laughs> it tends to get a little harder to try to get some folks on, on the core things that I do. But when we can get some folks out there, kids, you know, people that have never been exposed to the outdoors or nature in general, that's, that's for me, one of the big things that I like out of this. Uh, my position in working with DU is the fact that we can we can do the whole aspect from fundraising to doing the work on the ground to kind of the in-between of getting folks out there and getting them more knowledgeable about what it is that we're doing and what the importance is and how they can make an impact. Uh, I'll be the first to volunteer my services. If you have a piece of machinery and a project and you need a body to run that machinery, I'll be the first one. I, anytime I see a excavator or a bulldozer or a skid steer, I'm like a little kid. Uh, I just want to play in that dirt. Uh, now, across the, across the North American continent, you have multiple flyways for ducks. And the one that, that covers Pennsylvania is the Atlantic Flyway. You know, and why is the Atlantic Flyway so important to waterfowl and ducks in particular? Yeah, so I mean, the the flyways is more of a anthropogenic uh, idea of of categorizing these birds in different areas of where they're actually contained in, but. In reality, these birds are coming and going in different directions. Some migrate north-south, some migrate east-west, or you know, sort of from the prairies to like Chesapeake Bay. Um, so from North Dakota and uh, Manitoba, that area down to Maryland and Virginia and, Ches or, uh, and Delaware. So the flyways are more or less somewhat an idea to try to get things at least containable to the idea that we can set up goals, both for waterfowl numbers as well as habitat. Uh, and the Atlantic Flyway, I mean, in general, as we think of it, is, is very important to almost about, uh, we estimate about 7 million breeding ducks um, that breed throughout the Atlantic Flyway. And uh, we have about 20 million acres of wetlands to support those ducks. But as I had mentioned before, that's roughly about half in certain areas of what it used to be. Um, but here in uh, the east, sort of the, the, the key priority species, um, both from just waterfowl observers, you know, bird observers to even hunters is um, American black ducks is one that we, we tend to hold in high regard for uh, really giving a pulse as to what the wetland conditions are doing in the, specifically on the coast. Um, not so much in the interior, but American black ducks historically would have been your primary um, harvestable species back in the day before mallards sort of became 
whole Arctic or basically kind of took over some of these areas after development and ag came into play. Um, we also winter the majority of canvasbacks um, in the Chesapeake Bay, Delaware Bay areas and in, in upper Carolinas as well. Um, and then also we have the Eastern uh, sea ducks and Atlantic branch. Um, and also uh, as uh, Jeremy had mentioned, Canada geese is a big one. We have, uh, what's, we have a lot of resident Canada geese as well as what we call our AP or Atlantic population geese, which come from Northern uh, Canada and in the Arctics and migrate down through this area. So it's definitely a, a hot spot for species not only that are from these coasts, but some that are actually coming from the prairies. Like if you were to actually look at what we call banding recovery data, since we actually, um, the waterfowl community, the science community takes these bands, um, little aluminum bands and put them on the legs of waterfowl as they're caught as either adults or as hatchlings. Um, we can use that information to track where the birds came from and where they're going to. Um, and we see that, you know, like any state across the country, Pennsylvania is one that has regional importance to both Atlantic Flyway and other flyways, um, depending on where, what species and where they're breeding, where they're migrating through. So um, Atlantic Flyway, like all the flyways, are equally important depending on what species you're talking about and, and um, the particular habitat that, we're, that they're using. I have to ask, as I know a couple uh, duck and, and goose hunters, why is it such a big deal to shoot a banded bird? Uh, Jeremy, if you want to take that one too, I can take it as well. I mean, in general, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's prized as a, as a jewelry, uh, as many people call it. Um, they like to be a part of that knowledge of what's what's going on, uh, where the bird came from, how old it is, all that kind of thing. It's exciting to see that. And a lot of folks uh, used to be that you had to to mail it in or call in that number. Now everything's so instantaneous. You can sit there in the blind uh, with the serial number that's on that band and and go find out you know, and get your certificate of where that bird was raised, uh, how old it is, um, all those kinds of things. And it's just something that people really prize um, to get their hands on a, on a nice band. So it's almost a little bit of uh, contribution to citizen science then, if I'm thinking correctly, right? I mean, they're, they're taking up, uh, they're taking time to call that in and they become part of the process of figuring out where this bird came from and um, sort of uh, at least a snapshot, if not its whole life history. Yeah, absolutely. And, and point I mean, there, there is some level of, of rivalry who has the most bands around their, around their lanyard or whatnot, but at its core, I mean, that's majority of folks that I, I deal with and, and talk to. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is being a part of this larger conservation and, and getting that information, not only getting that information for themselves for their particular bird, but also seeing that information being developed into the larger picture to, to help conservation of the sport uh, and, you know, and the habitat they associate with that. Well, I, we, we've been talking for a while and I, I want to make sure that I'm conscious of both of your times as um, things are a little crazy uh, 
right now with, with COVID-19 and, and everything going on as far as scheduling. So uh, my last question to both of you, um, and I'll let Jim answer first, and then uh, Jeremy, if you could answer after that is, you know, what have we missed? What is the one important thing that we haven't talked about that you would like the listeners to know about DU um, or about ducks or about their migration or um, habitat, anything that you feel is of the utmost important we haven't talked about or even something that you want to just expand a little more on? Yeah, uh, again, a loaded question. I mean, um, not only am I a biologist for ducks and alumni, but I'm also a volunteer. I'm actually part of the local chapter here in Lancaster County and you know, tend to spend my even free time you know, helping out with events or you know meeting up with other volunteers and, and donors that have similar interests going hunting going recreating whatever so I mean there's there's we could talk about this all day but uh, if I had to narrow it down to the key specifics I mean organizationally just making the point, I mean, I, I briefly mentioned it before, we very much are a science-based organization from both our conservation as well as our public policy that goes on the ground. So um, more often than in the past, we've, we've really been engaged in the public out at the policy aspect of it, dealing with state and federal funding from North American Wetland Conservation Act, or NOC as we call it, the Farm Bill funding, uh, here in Pennsylvania, we've been engaged in the Environmental Stewardship Fund, or Growing Greeners, and the Keystone Funds, which if you've um, followed any of the news, uh, what's kind of going on within DEP, DCNR, and other sources, there's ideas because of the COVID uh, situation that conservation funding is on the, on the chopping block, essentially, to um, support uh, other other needs of the state and, and it's certainly one of the things that we can't lose sight of how important the conservation work means to not only um, the birds that we're trying to protect but also you know, the, the other aforementioned benefits from clean water to water quality or from flood protection erosion all those different things and if we're if we're nickel and diming what we should be spending on you know conservation is definitely one of those that should never be on the chopping block um, since we all need those resources to survive. Um, so public policy is certainly a big one to us. But you know, just here, in Pennsylvania, some things, other things, just to mention here, you know, Pennsylvania wide, uh, we're just under seventeen thousand members, so we're by no means a, a small organization. Uh, over the last year, you know, Jeremy and the other regional directors within the state, uh, including forty-six five chapters of done over almost three quarters of a million dollars in private funding um, that we've been leveraging. To date, we've done just under about 30,000 acres of wetland conservation within the state of Pennsylvania and invested uh, about $4.8 million. Um, now we got started a little bit later in Pennsylvania, about 1985-ish um, since uh, work was started in Canada, but we've really been making a, a big impact even from those early days. So. Uh, and as I mentioned, Pennsylvania supports a broader area and, and vice versa. Um, what we do here in Pennsylvania benefits birds on a national scale, and what we do at a national scale benefits birds here. So it's definitely uh, Pennsylvania is um, one of those states that, that certainly supports birds on, on both scales, and, and uh, there's benefits both ways. 
Jeremy, what, what have we missed? What is that one important thing uh, that we still need to talk about or my listeners still need to know? Uh, I, I just have to go back to the volunteer side of things. That's what I work with. And, you know, I, I can't push for folks to get involved with you or, you know, and you don't have to be a duck hunter. You don't have to be a goose hunter. You know, you can appreciate wildlife. You can appreciate clean water. Um, you know, and, and, you know, come out and get, and get in touch with your local chapter or go to the, you know, Ducks Limit website and we'll, we'll find a chapter near you. But, you know, folks come for their own reasons and uh, we, we hear it all the time. People come for the mission, but they stay because of the relationships they made in the committee. They become best friends, good friends, you know, and uh, that's volunteers are a lifeblood of the organization and without them we, we wouldn't be anywhere yeah we hear that so often from a lot of conservation organizations and and that uh can't be understated enough that uh, just the more that people can get involved and the more people you can get involved the greater impact uh that you can have uh gentlemen thank you for coming on uh, i really appreciate it um, and I hope that uh, we can continue to work together to make Ducks Unlimited uh, as successful as possible. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thank you for your time, Jason. Appreciate it. I want to thank Jim and Jeremy for coming on and, and talking to me about the great work that Ducks Unlimited is doing. Uh, it's great to see that not only are they putting money to extremely good use in the northeastern part of the United States, uh, but also, you know, the rest of North America as well. Uh, ducks is one of those species where it's really hard to be local, right? Uh, they're migratory species. So uh, you really have to do different things in different areas of the country for different times of year. So the amount of work that they're putting in uh, and and the different types of work that they're doing you know, really shows the dedication of that conservation group. Uh, if you're not a member or and you're thinking about becoming a member or you just want to learn more about how you can help uh, either through donations or volunteering your time. I highly recommend uh, you go to their website. It's very simple ducks.org. It's a, a, a great domain name for them to grab. Just go to ducks.org, D U C K S dot O R G, and learn more. Join. Uh, your money will be put to good use, as Jim liked to explain. And if you really want to help out and get involved, maybe, you know, with the uh, whole COVID thing and, and everything that's going on, you know, some people, uh, myself included, can't donate, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, right? I mean, we have to make sure we spend our money wisely as people, but you can donate your time. Uh, so reach out at ducks.org uh, and you can find uh, information for Jim and Jeremy and you can figure out, uh, they will help you figure out ways to really help the organization. Until next week, stay wild. Mm -hmm.